I think that couldn't be further from the truth. They Their first draft was pretty ambitious and it was chipped away at by the policymakers through the political process. And the planning department staff in Santa Monica could not have been more candid, more forthright, more open about the consequences of noncompliance than they were. I mean, every hearing, they would talk about how if we don't have a compliant housing element, the loss of local zoning control and the potential for developers to propose non-compliant general plan zoning, not compliant. I mean, it was repeated over and over again. So the fact okay. that certain policymakers saying, what, no, what, what builder's remedy? No, no one told us about builder's remedy. Well, yeah, that's maybe no one called it that, but uh, everyone, everyone talked about what it meant. So it should have come as no surprise. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you, Sonia, and everybody from Indie Law for inviting me today. This is exciting. Thrilled to, to be able to chat with you and have a, a dialogue, a Q&A, answer some questions about the, the last couple of re- weeks, which have taken an interesting turn for us down here working on housing projects, particularly in the city of Santa Monica. Just a little bit about me. I've been practicing land use law for a long time. And housing is not just a profession, but it is a passion of mine. Um, I'm on the board of the California Housing Partnership Corporation, active in housing issues here. Uh, And I started my own firm a couple of months ago, uh, along with a couple of great partners. And one of the reasons we did that is we wanted to, frankly, look at being a little bit more aggressive and taking a little bit um, different tack than we had been doing for years and years at our uh, prior law firms kind of going through the motions and kind of doing the drill and frankly wanted to try to shake things up a little bit. And um, given the work that a lot of folks have done you know, long before me on this issue, the MB Law at the forefront with the Builders Remedy, we were looking for an opportunity uh, to put it into motion. And working with the housing advocates down here in Los Angeles, Abundant Housing LA in particular, who have been terrific. Uh, I see Matt Stevens on the call. Hopefully Lenora Kamner is joining. You know, they actually came to me and said, we really want to make this happen. We really want to test this thing out. Do you have any clients that could be willing to do it? And I thought I may have a few, but frankly, there were a lot of questions and concerns about really putting it into motion. And for me, what I was really stuck on and that was keeping me from feeling comfortable recommending the builder's remedy as an actual strategy for a client to pursue and put in motion was the issue of timing and the issue of vesting. And uh, while I certainly know and believe in SB 330 and all the vesting benefits that it brings, to me, I was concerned that we would be hearing from city attorneys and third-party opponents that, sure, you can file this builder's remedy application while the city is out of compliance. But as we know, cities don't remain out of compliance for too long of a period of time. And given the builder's remedy doesn't exempt you from a discretionary process or CEQA, which we can talk about, uh, I was very concerned that we'd start this process, we'd maybe shake things up a little bit, but then we'd be stuck in your typical discretionary process only to have the city, let's call it Santa Monica, come into compliance and then our applications would go up in smoke. And so for me, it was very important to try to pin down the question of whether we can vest the city's non-compliant housing element status at the outset. So we file a preliminary application, which is a very easy thing to do intentionally so under the Housing Crisis Act. And we can be on terra firma that notwithstanding what happens with the city's compliance and their work going forward with HCD, at that moment of time, we're protected by the Housing Accountability Act and the Builders Remedy. So working with, with HCD, 
who were uh, terrific to work with on this issue, we were able to obtain that clarification. And that ticket, that, that, that clarification letter really is what, for our firm and for the clients that we're representing, launched this effort down in Southern California and Santa Monica in particular. So with that in hand, we were excited to have one particular client that has a lot of properties in Santa Monica and a lot of properties that are really ripe for housing production. They're largely in transit corridors. They're largely on major major boulevards. They're away from single family neighborhoods. They're frankly where density should be concentrated and where the city has wanted to encourage density in the past. And so the test was essentially this. Yeah, we're going to propose some buildings that are taller than what you're used to. But when the math is all said and done, we are going to deliver a thousand deed-restricted low-income units without any public subsidy, without any city resources being dedicated to it. And we're going to dare you to say no to those projects. This is a city that stands for housing and affordable housing. Uh, we hear a lot of rhetoric about that uh, from the city council bias. And I actually believe you know, the vast majority of people who are the decision makers and policymakers in the city actually do believe that. And so we're going to have a debate about what's more important, housing people, particularly providing a diversity of housing choices in exactly where we need to be doing it in high resources areas and bringing more equity and inclusion into the wealthiest parts of our state versus a little more fucking height. That's what we're talking about. And so, yes, I'm aware of legal arguments about are we in substantial compliance or not? And yes, we have SQL and there may be EIRs and Yes, there's D5 versus F1, and we can talk about whatever wonky stuff you want to talk about. But at the end of the day, this is about housing people in exchange for suffering the indignity of a little bit taller of a building in your neighborhood. And to me, I think that is a winnable fight all day long and twice on Sunday. That's what we're doing. And I'm very pleased to see that it is um, taking on a bit of, big, bit of a life of its own. And uh, we're seeing the project spring up all over the place, frankly. We filed a preliminary application for a project in Beverly Hills, a rather tall building in Beverly Hills that would bring 40 low-income units, 40 low-income units to the city of Beverly Hills. That is far more low-income units than the city has ever, ever planned for or let alone you know, approved in the past. And in and of itself, I think is a pretty significant story. So between Santa Monica, which you know is a, is a jurisdiction that's much, I think, more open to to affordable housing and certainly has spent a lot more time planning for it and talking about it. And city of Beverly Hills, which is kind of a different animal, we're going to see how these municipalities react. And we fully anticipate they'll be throwing everything uh, under the sun at us. And so uh, we look forward to working with the MB Law, a lot of folks that we're, I see on this call who, who, whose name and work I know and respect, people like Chris Elmendorf, who I, I greatly respect and uh, has just done amazing work around this issue. They, you know, no ego or pride of authorship here. You know, we got to win on this issue. It's very important. So it's going to take all the intellectual capital and resources we can pull in order to, to make this happen at the end of the day. So my great hope is that we will be successful. We will see the city have to succumb to these projects. Uh, we will see NIMBY lawsuits. I'm, it's, it's, it's inevitable. It's already started and being put in motion. Uh, but we will beat them. And ultimately, we will um, have not only a good tool for production that can be utilized up north as the housing element season begins up there, but also one of the interesting and I think really important side effects of this builder's remedy tool is that my hope is that this will keep jurisdictions, even some bad actor jurisdictions, the recalcitrant jurisdictions who are not wildly enthusiastic about 
adopting housing element, embracing increased arena, we will keep them on the straight and narrow because the threat of the builder's remedy is no longer a mere academic exercise. It is now a very central part of the policy discussion around housing element law and land use and planning in, in municipalities up and down the state. So one of the interesting things we saw in Santa Monica is you know, they have a very long housing element process, obviously. Part of that was what allowed us to do what we're doing. Uh, but when it came time for them to adopt the final housing element, which was no small thing in and of itself, that housing element had very specific commitments to substantially increase zoning capacity, very meaningful increase in heights and FARs for districts throughout the city. And that was not necessarily an easy vote and the vote that number of council members wanted to take. But man, I can't tell you how quickly they all look to push the yes button on that housing element after the building, Builders Remedy projects were filed. There was no discussion of the upzoning, no discussion of the rezoning. It was all about how do we shut the door on the Builders Remedy and get this housing element adopted as quickly as possible. If that's what comes out of this, if that's what happens up north, that cities take their housing elements more seriously, they commit to their rezoning programs and they do it faster, and even if we don't see a single unit out of the builder's remedy, the exercise will have been worth it from a policy perspective writ large. So with that, uh, I'll stop. And um, Sonia and folks, maybe I don't know if you want to do Q&A or, or what, but happy to, happy to do that if it's, um, if, it, if it's good for you guys. Yeah, I think we can uh, go forward with Q&A. Um, if everyone, uh, you, yeah, okay, great. See the hand raising's working. Um, so I will uh, give the first question to Josh. Hey, uh, my name's Josh. I'm just curious, have you gotten uh, people from other cities signing with you to actually uh, to actually possibly file builders remedy projects? I'm more interested in what cities. So I sent you someone from South Pasadena who signed with you. And I'm just wondering if there's other people who have uh, contacted you in other cities that you're thinking oh, of perhaps. doing. Yes, there absolutely have. And uh, thank you for that. We are working in South Pasadena on a builder's remedy project. South Pasadena is particularly interesting because they're actually bound by a settlement agreement. And that settlement agreement was with a pretty certain and affordable not-for-profit housing provider. But one of the provisions of that settlement agreement is that it obligates the city to process builders' remedy projects. We'll have an even more interesting time seeing how South Pasadena tells us now when they're not only bound by the law, but as a matter of settlement agreement contract. So that's going to be a fun one. It's fascinating. I, one of the more interesting calls I had uh, the other day was about a 100% affordable project, 100% moderate income project specifically in the city of Compton, not where we have been thinking the majority of building projects would be proposed, but you know a different angle on how to bring moderate income units to, to that very different kind of jurisdiction and use this as a potential tool. I'm not sure if that's going to go forward, but it's it's definitely top of mind for developers and property owners and looking at new and different opportunities. We've talked to a lot of folks who have been stymied over time in various jurisdictions, looking for a way out looking for a safety valve, essentially, because they've been pursuing a general plan amendment or a rezone or something, and they have just been stuck. You know, we're looking at seeing if there's a way to help folks get those types of projects through. And again, of course, delivering a significant community benefit of 20% of the total units for lower income housing at the same time. One thing I will say is we're hearing from a lot of folks with projects in, in the coastal zone. And I think trying to do a builder's remedy in the coastal zone is very challenging, given the carve out in the HAA the coastal zone and some prior case law, which happy to talk about it if it's of interest. So those projects we are staying away from uh, intentionally. But if we're out of the coastal zone, yeah, we're very interested in 
seeing these um, spread out throughout um, the jurisdictions we, we typically work in and not just concentrate them in one or two cities. Next uh, question will be um, Ryan, uh, if you can introduce yourself before the question, uh, go ahead. Um, if anyone has a question they want to ask anonymously, you can chat me and I'll bring it up later. And uh, then after Ryan, we'll go to Matt, who I'm sure can say something about uh, South Pasadena and then Daniel. My question's fairly general. I'm I'm Ryan. I'm a Santa Monica resident, and I was wondering if, as a resident, is there anything in particular I can do to try to make sure these go through? I kind of like spent the last three days like listening to our most recent city council meeting where they were going to be discussing, you know, their legal options for for fighting this, but the meeting went until two in the morning, and they didn't even get to that get to that item. But as a resident, is there anything I can do to help? make sure that these actually go through? The, the, thank you for asking that, Ryan. There, there absolutely is. It's really important, and, and, and I was pleased to see folks from Abundant Housing and some other advocates that, that were able to attend that hearing and speak out against the city's efforts to retain outside counsel for the sole purpose of stopping these projects. But we are going to have several flashpoints along the way, including another hearing on that very same topic or along those lines. And so Turning out, speaking up for the project, speaking up for the need for these units really, really does matter because the narrative that is being spun by certain council members who are leading the charge against these projects is that these are terrible for the residents. This is going to ruin Santa Monica. This is going to change our character. This is going to you know, destroy our low, slung, sleepy beach town. And the more people that they hear from, even if they don't necessarily like it, that we need homes of all types, uh, we need the affordable housing these projects bring. There's not the subsidies there to deliver all the units that the city has committed to, frankly, through the housing element, through 100% affordable projects. And so we need these inclusionary units. They're an important part of our production work. That's really That really matters. And the fact that these projects will have to go through a discretionary process means there will be public hearings. And so bringing folks out to those public hearings and having the decision makers here from supporters is, is going to be very important. And so we'll definitely connect you, keep you connected, Ryan, and make sure you know of those opportunities to, to come help us out when uh, when they arise. Okay, Matt, Daniel, and then I've got a bunch of chat questions, and then I'll get to the rest of the raise hands. Hi, Dave. Matt Gelfand at Californians for Homeownership. That's our settlement agreement with South Pasadena, and we have uh, we have a lot more of those. Um, we have a few settlement agreements and a few pre-settlement negotiated acknowledgments of the builder's remedy. So there's definitely some places where you can skip that piece of the litigation. And we're trying to get more. I had two questions. One is, you know, there's a number of provisions that people refer to as the builder's remedy, and one of the other ones is around rezoning obligations. There's a rule that says that. Uh, that provides for automatic approval of projects with 49%. It's a little unclear what it means for uh, cities that haven't done their rezoning and it has come due. So I was wondering whether that's something that you're looking at and whether there are projects like that that you see coming in um, that I think Chris Elmendorf tweeted about it yesterday as well that that might, might be able to take additional advantage of CEQA exemption there. And uh, I'll, I will tell you, we, we filed our first rezoning lawsuit against the city of Manhattan Beach last week. Um, so there may be an opportunity there. And then my other question is, we've heard, I've heard now from in multiple venues 
that the Bay Area jurisdictions are increasingly being advised to adopt bad housing elements timely rather than waiting and adopting good housing elements. And I was wondering if you had any reaction to how that may or may not interfere with the builder's remedy opportunities in the Bay Area. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for your great work. And that was fantastic what you did in South Pasadena there. And um, so hugely helpful. And look forward to talking to you about where you're doing that elsewhere. The the 49% thing that was tweeted out yesterday is, is very much something we're looking at. I will say if the builder's remedy has some ambiguities and complexities, this one is like that on steroids. It, it's This is the Del Mar project that was just filed the other day which is kind of like sort of strikes me as kind of a half court bank shot, but we're looking at it and we're seeing it if it has some applicability down in Southern California. Part of the challenge is 49% affordable is a very difficult thing economically to do for projects that are not receiving public subsidy or tax credit or bond financing. So there may be interesting uh, opportunities there for 100% affordable providers, which would be great. Most of my clients, candidly, are are market rate mixed income providers, and so that is not something that they would typically be able to economically sign up for. Uh, but we're looking at it, and it may have some some applicability here and there. As for the housing elements and the rush to adopt the housing elements, you know, in the interest of getting in under to be deemed substantial compliance using a Fonseca argument or or something else, I, I think is a is a fool's errand. And that's one of the things that we will be litigating and the courts will decide on with the builder's remedy. But if you're Beverly Hills and this is their exact position and you've adopted a housing element and you're sent you send that thing up to HCD and they send you a 15-page letter going on and on and on about how is it deficient in every aspect of state housing element law. I don't know how a municipality says with a straight face that they need substantial compliance. I mean, let us have that conversation with the judge because to me, that's just complete horseshit. And so I, I think if cities try to do that, they will wind up putting themselves in a bind and they should be doing the opposite. They should be leaning into complying and that means doing all the hard stuff, rezoning, affirmatively furthering fair housing, all the hard stuff in order to get a certified housing element quickly. That's what will protect them ultimately from these projects. Because I don't foresee attorneys like myself uh, and the very good attorneys I know who, who are working up north shying away from taking on those municipalities uh, when their tactics are so obvious and in bad faith. In addition to bad po policy and bad faith, it's a bad legal strategy in my view. We'll see what happens, but I feel good about that. Next up, Daniel, and then I've got a couple chat questions and then more raised hands. So um, Dan Fratton with uh, Ruben Junius and Rose, and I'm the chair of the Housing Action Coalition up here. And, you know, we've been watching with glee <laughs> as we see things unfolding in um, in Santa Monica. But the first thing that comes, you know, that comes to mind for people who've done a lot of work in San Francisco is that, you know, San Francisco is adept at abusing CEQA, you know, and they have done it you know, so far with great success. And, you know, I know that uh, there are some challenges on the 469 Stevenson project where, you know, there was a demurrer that the city filed. And, um, you know, I don't think we're going to really have an answer on the sort of CEQA abuse issues for a while. But how much do you see that as a 
is a threat and you know what what do you think is a good way to scare cities into not trying that and then uh sort of second and related question is whether whether anybody challenged the housing element eir in uh santa monica okay so first question is yes this is a, this is definitely a concern this would be you know at the very top of the list of, of, of concerns and uh and i watched from afar you guys all know way better and i don't know san francisco i've never worked in san francisco but i watched the stevenson debacle from afar uh and i was heartened to see that hcd sent them a fairly stern letter calling out what they were clearly doing my fear is that jurisdictions are going to be smarter than the San Francisco Board of Supervisors was in Stevenson. You know, there was some tweets and, and some comments on the record that made it pretty patently obvious that the Board of Supervisors was using CEQA in order to end around the HAA in that case. I think it could be done a lot more deftly, frankly, and a lot more strategically and make it a lot harder. So what my thought about that has been is is twofold. For the moment, uh, we're trying to be somewhat selective about the projects that we work on. And we're trying to keep our projects focused on infill, transit priority areas, and areas where we are you know, likely to minimize CEQA impacts to the greatest extent that we can. If we're doing we're doing a big the biggest one of our projects in, in Santa Monica is in what we call the Bergamon area. Of the of, of the city of Santa Monica, it's it's right up on a light rail station, regional serving transit. There are not sensitive receptors, single family neighborhoods anywhere in the vicinity. VMT uh, for traffic impacts is clearly not an issue. Concentrating that amount of housing and affordable housing so close to transit. So what 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 are they going to say is the basis for not approving a statement of overriding considerations and killing 400 low income homes? So we have a short-term intermittent construction noise impact. Really? That's what you're going to hang your hat on? And so we're going to have that discussion about whether CEQA is really being used to circumvent the HAA. And we are you know, going to see if cities start to manufacture impacts. And I think there is some, and we're looking at this more closely, I'm no doubt Yimby Law has done a lot more work on this than I have, but we're looking at the bad faith provisions of the HAA as a potential uh, argument that cities, you know, yes, they have to comply with CEQA on a builder's remedy project. Yes, mitigation needs to be imposed, but to the extent that the CEQA document is refused to be certified for you know, shaky grounds or that the process is just dragged out to the point where the process is being abused, I think there is an argument that those bad faith provisions in the HAA, reading those two state statutes together in harmony, could compel a city to get their act together and 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 to not take that tactic. But what we're really going to ultimately need in this regard is hopefully some legislative fixes. And I know that EMB Law did some work around a bill last session that would have made it harder for cities to reject applicable sequel exemptions. One of the exemptions that I'm most bullish about in connection with the builder's remedy is what we call the transit priority project exemption, which is uh, tied to consistency with the regional transportation plan sustainable community strategies. Problem is there can only be 200 units, but that particular exemption somewhat uniquely does not require general plan zoning consistency. So 200 unit project with 40 affordable homes could be approved through a sequel exemption based on just meeting a set of objective checklist criteria, but we need some stronger statutory language that 
assuming substantial evidence supports the applicability of the exemption that the city's compelled to actually process it. What we're concerned about is just cities turning a blind eye to that stuff and putting you through the most rigorous form of environmental review, even though there's evidence in the record suggests that um, there may be an easier pathway. So that, those are some of the things that we're thinking about right now. It, it is going to come to be a moment in time where we're going to have a debate again about what I don't believe will be horribly concerning impacts and or unusual impacts and cities really having to take a public vote that that's the reason they're turning down all this housing. Remember that the, the standard of a statement of overriding considerations is essentially a balancing test. Do the benefits of the project outweigh the detriment associated with the impact that can't be mitigated? Again, for the benefits of 20% low income and new housing production when we're in a housing crisis, is that really not outweigh the benefits of construction impacts. We're going to be on the winning side of that argument, but we'll see how it plays out. Okay. Uh, next question from the chat. I'm going to uh, paraphrase a little bit, and then we'll go to Steve after this. Um, so this is a question about uh, San Francisco's very long list of application requirements. You know, right now, San Francisco requires things like tree planting, transit demand management forms, inclusionary housing affidavits, Maher program enrollment, blah, 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 blah. And the question is, is there any chance that builders remedy projects elsewhere in California will pave the way for a simpler process in San Francisco? So I can't speak to that with much authority, uh, not having experience in San Francisco. What, the one thing I'd say, I guess my re initial reaction to it is, um, that's why the preliminary application in SP 330 is so important as a part of the strategy, because I, I get it. You know, our version of that down here is the city of Malibu. You, you got to produce everything under the sun in order to get a deemed complete uh, application in the city of Malibu. Biology reports, I mean, hydrology, lid, full lid plans, the craziest set of materials. But uh, you can file and lock in a builder's remedy project just with a preliminary application. And that's that HCD guidance letter that I that I reference. And no matter how a city wants to layer on process, that's really established by statute. So the city can't add extra layers of process associated with the preliminary. They can't tell you that we need to review it and deem it complete. You check your boxes, you submit a site plan and colored elevations, you pay your fee, boom, you're vested. And then you have six months to work with the city on putting those component parts together. And you know, hopefully the process that transpires from there under SB 330 in terms of the deemed complete period and the period of time in which the city mixes essentially bring the application complete provided the applicant is providing all the required materials hopefully that helps to get you uh into the uh into a, a complete application uh quicker than it would otherwise be the case but it's another area where we could use legislative reform i mean there's there are certain cities that really do abuse the number of materials and information that have to be provided up front to the point where uh, analog down here my favorite city and least favorite city, the city of Agoura Hills. Um, my favorite city because I live here and I'm a resident. My least favorite city is because they are the worst when it comes to housing anywhere. And that's worse than Malibu, Beverly Hills, anywhere. And they require essentially plan check level documentation to get an application complete. I mean, there are horror stories about how long it has taken applicants to get to a deemed complete process based on ridiculous abuse of needless information at the entitlement stage. So another legislative fix where you know it could be made more clear and, and succinct and streamlined in terms of what 
are the component parts of an application that can be deemed complete and the process from an entitlement perspective versus front loading a lot of stuff that you typically do in, in plan check or much later. Steve, take it away. And then I got another chat question. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Steve Lynch, Sand Hill Property Company. We're a Bay Area uh, focused development company. So thank you for everything you've done on this, by the way. Tremendous excitement, um, which we don't get a lot of excitement up here coming from the South. So thank you for doing this. Hey, bridging off of Daniel's question about um, CEQA uh, being subject to CEQA still. So we still see this as a fairly significant concern up here. We have projects that can still take anywhere from two to four years under a normal CEQA process. So I'm wondering if you've had any sort of thought at all about overlaying it with, you know, AB 2011 when that becomes effective or SB 35, um, meaning you can sort of submit um, a 330 project to toll your housing numbers in your project and then backfill that with an SB 35 project that would add to CEQA streamlining. So our preliminary reviews, we think this is doable, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Well, we're certainly looking at 2011 with a lot of interest um, on plenty of SB35 projects, but they each have their own independent challenges. I mean, um, I'm thrilled with 2011 and it, it's a great thing, and, but it's not for every project. I mean, you know, down here, you, you know, it's challenging to to uh, take on the union commitments of prevailing wage and healthcare benefits coupled with some of the affordable requirements in, in that statute. Uh, the densities are also challenging depending on certain criteria. So I'm not sure how many projects we're going to see utilizing AB 2011. And SB 35 right now, in my estimation, is really a limited tool uh, because most of the jurisdictions are in the 50% affordable category. And that's that's very, very challenging to make work. And in fact, I've never seen one work. So we, we typically only see them proposed by 100% affordable product providers, which is great. I'm thrilled that it's that tool for those needed projects. Or we see them proposed in the limited number of 10% jurisdictions, uh, which uh, those projects are far more feasible, viable. One of the things that's going to happen longer term is that as cities fail to meet their annual proportionate arena requirement, more cities will be falling from the 50% bucket into the 10% bucket making a SB 35 a lot more viable tool and a lot more municipal, a lot increased number of municipalities, but it's going to take time, a little bit of time for that. And then there's still a lot of places where you just can't do SB 35, can't do it in the coastal zone. Challenging if you're, you're in a very high fire housing severity zone. I guess uh, maybe is the answer, but um, you know we haven't we haven't talked about marrying builders' remedy with some of these other things. I mean, SB thirty five requires general plan zoning compliance. AB twenty eleven essentially does as well. You can use density bonus, but I, I think you're probably going to be looking at one or the other, and um, and it's not every project that's certainly going to be able to make twenty eleven and or SB thirty five work. But again, yeah, I share your concerns relative to CEQA. It's a it's a real issue. And um, you know, we're we're just we're gonna have to take it as it comes. But it's 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 definitely the reason why a lot of developers that I've been speaking with who were initially very excited about it when they heard what's what is involved and you know how it doesn't provide any help relative to streamlining, then you know, a lot of initially enthusiastic takers um, decided to pass on it and go the traditional route. All right. Uh, next one's a two-parter. Um, quick. I'll start with the quick one, and then maybe one you can expand on. Um, one. There's a question about there's a CEQA exemption for six-unit infill projects. I think if you can just speak to that. And then two more generally. What's the timeline we can expect for a builder's remedy mega project? 
the timeline for uh, uh, building the remedy mega projects is really going to be dependent on the jurisdiction and the level of sequel review. So one interesting thing we're we're seeing is you know we we may on a large project in a transit priority area builders remedy project fully mitigate all of our impacts. So if that's the case, then we can use one of the new SP three seventy five tools called SCIA Sustainable Communities Environmental Assessment, and that is a great tool because it does not have the two hundred unit cap that the Sustainable Communities Project Exemption the PPA exemption has. It effectively functions like a mitigated negative declaration, but with a far more deferential, supportable, substantial evidence standard of review. So we're using those a lot in these normal course projects in the infill context and TPA areas. Will cities be willing to use them for a builder's remedy project? We don't know yet. And so, you know, they should. It doesn't require general plan zoning consistency. So if they were willing to use it before in these areas, a little bit more density and a little bit more height, especially when you figure aesthetic impacts in these areas are automatically less than significant, should not defeat those more streamlined tools. There may be some jurisdictions that are still open to that. There may be ones that are not. And if they, the jurisdiction wants to drag their feet and kill the projects and demand the full EIR and slow boat it, then we could be looking at a pretty long horizon on some of these projects. If we can convince cities to essentially follow the normal course on CEQA and use some of these applicable streamlining tools that are absolutely defensible, then we may be able to get them done in a shorter period of time. It's just all going to depend on what project, where, what city you're in, where you're at, all those questions. And you had one other question had to do with a, a six-unit exemption, which I can't say I'm familiar with it, only because I can't remember the last time I worked on a six-unit project. So that one, I, I don't have an answer for you. All right, uh, Barack, and then I'll go to another chat question, and then Matt. Hey, Dave, thank you so much. I'm Barack, a resident of SF. The goal here is to get, let's say, a thousand West Side projects submitted on February 1st as high as possible. So, to that end, how much does it cost to get an application in that like vests a project? And where does that cost come from? Is it all you? Do you have to buy the option on the land? Like, what's the breakdown there? It can be order of magnitude. And how much can we productionize that? Because these lots are pretty standard. And then also, how cool would it be? Like, cool as in, would it work to do multiple parallel projects? So you do a five-story one, a 10-story one, and a fuck you 50-story one, don't mess with us, on the same, like, lot. Or would that look like bad faith or something? Thank you. So on the question of how much work and how does it how long does it take and what's involved in investing an application, it's it's pretty simple and inexpensive. You, you need to have site control or you need to have the off the authorization of the owner to file an application. So you can't just walk around filing preliminary vesting applications on random properties. You, you need to be able to work with the property owner to have the sign off to do that. If you have that, though, you could file it with just a site plan and elevations, and that's not terribly expensive or, or all that involved from a preparation standpoint. One of the recent ones we did, architect was able to pull that together in a little over a week, so not much really involved there. But I'm not sure what the efficacy of filing a bunch of vesting applications where you don't have the ability to actually go forward and file a full application and you know actually process the project. I'm not sure what, what benefit that necessarily brings, but if there are property owners that are interested in doing them and going the distance on them, then it, it doesn't take much to lock in the non-compliant housing. Owners. 
could do it quickly. We did it very quickly in Santa Monica. 15 projects and roughly 5,000 units were filed in two weeks. But are we talking like $10,000, a million dollars? Like how much does it cost? Oh yeah, no, I, I would imagine it cost our clients to prepare the, the site plan and the elevation, which are the only plan level materials required to file a preliminary application. I'm guessing that was in the neighborhood of 10, 15 grand. And the other one, the multiple projects and multiple sites, you got to be careful with that from a CEQA project splitting set, uh, standpoint, since these projects are subject to CEQA, you know, to the extent you're doing that and clearly splitting up a related project that is connected through common areas, shared access, open space, those kinds of things. You can walk right into a, a segmentation argument. So there are some challenges associated with that uh, when you are subject to a CEQA review. Okay, uh, next question from the chat, and then we'll go to Matt. The builder's remedy applies to uh, certain types of affordable housing projects. We know there are the different income categories in California. Uh, the question is, how is low-income rent calculated? And uh, this question is heard that it is a more aggressive formula. It is a more aggressive formula. Yeah, it is the it is the more aggressive rent schedule. In LA, we, we, we colloquially re refer to them as Schedule 1 versus Schedule 6. Schedule 1 is the HUD rent. Schedule 6 is the state health and safety rents that are, that are much lower. And it's it's the lower rent schedule that, that is uh, referenced in the in the statute for the 20% affordable requirement for a builder's remedy. That's actually been a concern, interestingly enough, with some developers who were sort of marginally struggling with making it work. And that actually was the the difference in deciding not to go forward. If they could have reaped the higher rent schedule, then it you know, would have penciled, but the lower rents with such a large percentage of the total units was too much of a subsidized uh, restriction that, that it didn't work. An important nuance. All right, Matt, you're up next. Okay, cool. Hey, Dave. Uh, so I have two questions for you. Um, I'll ask the first one, let you answer, and then ask the second. The first was about the city attorney's comments on Tuesday, um, where he was basically laying out, he said he didn't think the city could do anything differently over the previous 18 months, that no matter what the city did, they would have been in this position, which I think is obviously false. Staff put together a pretty good first draft of the housing element, and then it was watered down over the subsequent 18 months. Um, but does the city attorney making that argument, does that pose any kind of legal significance for you trying to get these arguments approved? Like, is there anything that advocates should be doing to try to disprove that? Or, you know, do we just kind of let him pontificate there? No, I'm not. I don't think that had much legal import, Matt. I think that was just more addressing the stuff that you've no doubt been reading about as a resident, that this was somehow staff's fault, that this, right. you know, this was not that they didn't do their job, that, that that they didn't, you know, disclose the builder's remedy risk to the decision makers, you know, and didn't ring the alarm bell loud enough, often enough. And uh, I agree with your assessment that I think that couldn't be further from the truth. They Their first draft was pretty ambitious and it was chipped away at by the policymakers through the political process. And the planning department staff in Santa Monica could not have been more candid, more forthright, more open about the consequences of non-compliance than they were. I mean, every hearing they would talk about how if we don't have a compliant housing element, the loss of local zoning control and the potential for developers to propose non-compliant general plan zoning, not compliant. I mean, it was repeated over and over again. So the fact okay. that certain policymakers saying, what, no, what, what build, builder's remedy? No, no one told us about builder's remedy. Well, yeah, that's maybe no one called it that, but 
uh, everyone everyone talked about what it meant, so it should have come as no surprise. But I, I think I, I thought that was just sort of a, a a general kind of CYA, not so much a, a legal tactic. The bigger legal issue was his comments about what, which I was sort of surprised at how open he was about their apparent forthcoming legal strategy. But nevertheless, his comments about how the HCD letter that he was sent or uh, the city was sent on September sixth which was before the builder's remedy applications were filed, indicating that the draft document was substantially compliant, but that it was only a draft. It still had to go through the process. CEQA still had to be complied with. It still had to be formally approved and sent to the state for official review of legal compliance and certification. They're going to hang their hat on that, that under the law, that's sufficient for substantial compliance. And I just think that's completely wrong. I don't know how you say, you again, say with a straight face, that uh, a document which they telegraphed completely as only a draft and acknowledged that they had to go back and do a ton more work on to bring it back for formal adoption to be able to officially send it to the state somehow meant substantial compliance. I think it's weak. If that's the best they got, then I think we're going to be in good shape. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, staff was trying to convince council to adopt at that October 11th hearing. So there was no guarantee at all that they were actually going to adopt that draft. My second question relates to the um, the Yimby Law lawsuit in Los Angeles about zoning and general plan. Yes. Um, does that lawsuit mean that we need to wait around for rezoning to happen? Or can you just say, well, the housing element is part of the general plan. It's been adopted. Therefore, we can use the densities that are in the housing element and rezoning. You can do whatever you want, but we don't need to wait for that. So this, I gotta just give a shout out to, to Sonia and Rafa and all that you got. I mean, this this was such a great win. I mean, and this may not mean much for you guys up in Northern California, but you know, I'm an LA-based land use lawyer. I, you know, this is where I cut my teeth doing this work. And very early on, from the point in I I started, nothing bothered me more. And I have been beyond candid with everybody from the planning director all the way down in the LA planning department. Nothing bothered me more about the sophistry that the city of LA tried to sell about what they viewed as general plan zoning consistency. We have all over Los Angeles, ridiculously inconsistent zoning relative to the general plan land use designation. I mean, there are properties and I've worked on projects where we have a general plan designation that is regional commercial. In LA, that is the most intense land use designation that allows the greatest development rights. It's only around the most intense nodes in the city. It's fairly limited. Regional commercial with R1 zoning, single family zoning. And the notion that the city of LA's position, that that's consistent because not only the typical regional commercial consistent zoning is consistent, but anything else that's more restrictive was such an affront to me. And I called up one of my favorite people in the city of LA is a guy named Matt Glesney, who is a super smart uh, housing expert and a terrific planner. And I called him up and I, I just said, Matt, I just got done reading the Yimby Law case. And he goes, yeah, I knew I'd be hearing from you. I said, you know what I feel like? I feel like this reminds me of when I was 13 years old and I discovered Playboy. And that, that's, that's, that's literally, I mean, it was that much fun. It was so enjoyable to read Judge Chalfant just shred the city of LA's general plan zoning consistency argument. But what it means is it's hugely consequential because in LA, if you have to pro- uh, process a zone change, you're subject to what's called Measure JJJ, which requires very high affordable 
and prevailing wage uh, and very strict union obligations. And there have been very, very few applicants that have been able to make that work economically. But what this means is you don't have to go through that zone change process. You don't have to incur those, uh, those project burdens. You don't have to go through that risk. You can process a project consistent with the upper density allowed by the general plan land use designation. You do a density bonus project and be protected under the Housing Accountability Act. If that holds at the appellate court, there will be nothing more significant unlocking housing production in the city of Los Angeles than that outcome. Unfortunately, a different superior court, as the MB folks well know, reached a different conclusion in the Snowball case, a case that didn't have as good a fact pattern as the Yimby case. But the hope is that the Court of Appeal resolves it in that favor. And if it does, then yes, Matt, the rezoning and the community plan updates, which is the city's understandable yet very laborious and slow way of achieving consistency, we won't need to wait around for it for a lot of properties. A lot of properties will be able to just jump right into the uh, into the general plan and do density bonus projects and deliver housing much quicker. Rafa, uh, you're up, and then I want to get to Scott and a question from Ann Paulson, if we have time, and then hopefully Sonia. Thanks, Keith, and uh, appreciate the shout out for our work in L.A., one note about, about that case, that stems from 2018's law AB 3194. Folks, I encourage to check out the legislative history on that. That bill was specifically written to address the situation where a city adopts a housing element to allow a project to move forward without waiting for the rezoning, which could take you know three years or more. Uh, my question was, well, actually I have two, and, but I hope we can get through them. When developers often have site control on some land, uh, it may not be zoned in a way that's particularly useful for bringing a project forward. And there are some options that they have. They can apply for a traditional legislative action to do a rezoning, like in, in, in LA with Measure JJJ, or they can wait for the city to adopt a housing element and access the density allowed under the housing element. And, uh, and then they also have the option of uh, basically waiting for the city to avoid its responsibility to rezone their land if, if their land is a housing element site and propose a 49% affordable project. And of course, they have the builder's remedy if the city is not in compliance. So I'm just wondering how, like, if you have thoughts about like sort of the pros and cons of those different entitlement pathways. Yeah, I mean, the, I think they're going to be pretty obvious to everybody. The, the, the pros of the, the traditional legislative process, legislative action process, is its normal course. It's public process. You're not, not an act of war on the city. Uh, the problem with it is, is it's unbelievably discretionary, uh, risky, gives you nothing concrete in terms of you know, legal protection about the project. But it certainly uh, would be the city's uh, preference in terms of you know maintaining good position relative to the city. You know, builders on the other extreme is the builder's remedy, which is we're certainly arguing protective under the HAA. But cities are uh, going to be very concerned about and potentially throw up the roadblocks that we talked about, sequel process, the like. So you're really balancing those issues. And uh, the 49%, I, I'm to be honest, I'm still not quite a believer yet. We're, we're still looking at that. But regardless, it's not going to be an option for most of these projects that I work on because of the high affordable requirement. It's just not, it's, you know, it's 100% affordable uh, subsidized type project uh, option for the most part as I see it. So, you know, it just depends. It's going to depend on the developer. The developer that I represent in Santa Monica who proposed the majority of the builder company projects is very aggressive. And, uh, you know, it's no compunction about 
breaking a few eggs uh, to make the omelet along the way, to quote another uh, one of my clients. And um, someone like that may be willing to take the swing for the fences. Most developers are more careful, more cautious, and uh, will probably be wanting to stick with the normal course approach. And then the interesting thing is if we can find a way to, to, to develop the strategy around where different options can be utilized, where we can maybe leverage a builder's remedy application in order to advance a project that may go through the normal course. We're looking at that in different situations where the builder's remedy may not be the permit that gets approved, but it's part of the overall strategy to get the city to a position where there may be more opening to process something that just coming off the street without that leverage, they may not be willing to do. So that could be useful in certain circumstances. So we'll see. We're still figuring out. It's still kind of early with this stuff, but um, it, it's going to depend on on the city, the project, and the developer who who their capital is. If they have institutional capital, they're likely to be less open to the builder's remedy than going down a normal course process. All these things factor into it. Thank you. And uh, real quickly, I'm hoping uh, has HCD been involved in um, the process for for any of these builder's remedy projects since since they issued the uh, technical assistance memo? No, they have not. But I um, am, am am planning to be going back in a different way with a number of additional clarification requests with additional information based on additional research in the hopes that they will be able to help clarify some additional things that will help us along the way. But to date, no, to answer your question, Rafa. Okay, uh, Scott, you've patiently had your hand raised for half hour, so I'll give it to you. Um, and Sonia um, saw some other questions in the chat. So sorry, I think we're going to be out of time, but uh, we'll have to plan on doing this again. Okay, to, uh, it's a quick question. We have submitted an application under normal general plan rezone, uh, set aside 15% affordable, completed MND, and we were denied. Um, we would like to submit an SB 330 application, but the question is on an already existing application that's gone, you know, basically all the way through the process to do an SB 330 app, what's the resubmittal requirements? And do you have to resubmit a brand new app? Uh, yes, typically the city would, I'm not sure where you're at, Scott, but typically the city would require you to file a brand new application and you would want to do that because you would want to clarify in your preliminary application the basis of your proposal that it is a builder's remedy project, include some you know information around that and explain why, not, not that you need to be general plan and zoning consistent when you file a preliminary application, but you would want to explain um, as a matter of law, while you're filing the application you're filing. But yeah, it sounds to me, given your situation, it's a do-over. And that would be paying set, a second set of fees for that application as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. After going through the process and denying you, you're not going to be entitled to a uh, an application fee credit, unfortunately. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Okay, uh, Dave, I don't want to hold you up anymore. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, great. Um, anyone else who wants to chat with me, I, I don't have anything immediately. So feel free to hang on. But uh, Dave, I know you got to run. So thank you so much for presenting. And uh, we, uh, we're we all watching this project. We're really excited about it. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun and, and love the work that you guys do. And so and big fans and appreciate everything and look forward to collaborating more as we go forward and uh, try to get these projects through. Thank you. Great. Thanks, guys. Have a good rest All of your day. All right. Thanks, Dave. Hey, everyone. Kenneth here, one of the Infill producers. If you're not already a member, 
go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need for abundant, affordable housing and inclusive, sustainable communities across the country. If you believe this work is important and valuable, I really want to urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.